everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, recently we had Ramsey Fawaz on the show. We reviewed X-Men number 57. Basically, all you need to know before this, Neil Adams is in the book. The art is beautiful now. Uh, the Sentinels are back. They have captured Alex Summers, Lorna Dane, and a few others. And it uh, looks like Bolivar Trask, the man who died when he created the Sentinels, has a son named Larry. Uh, he has made an alliance with a federal judge named Judge Chalmers, and they have founded the Federal Council on Mutant Activities and are seeking government backing to round up mutants with government approval. Uh, so today we're going to go over X-Men 58, but before we get there, I am thrilled to welcome uh, the very talented and incredible and historic uh, comic book creator, uh, Mike Friedrich. Mike, how are you? I'm very well. Glad to meet you. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm also thrilled to be joined uh, by someone I met at FlameCon just uh, uh, last month who has agreed to come on the show as a co-host today. Uh, Rohan, I want to make sure I say your name last right, uh, your last name right. Is it Shu Li? <laughs> it's a uh, Jolie, but yeah, you can I say Jolie. I was way off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rohan, how are you? I'm doing great. Doing super great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So happy you're here. So we're going to start today's portion off, as always, by just kind of getting to know Mike. Uh, Mike is a historic comic book writer who has created some of your favorite characters, and you may not even be aware, and has a pretty historic comic book career. Uh, Mike, let's start with how did you break into the business? I would love to hear a little bit about your journey as kind of a comic book fan or storyteller into your professional work. So I started out in high school back in the days when, due to postal regulations, comics needed to have something that was non-comic content, so they had letters pages. And I wrote letters to the editor of my favorite comics that got published a lot. I think I wound up having something like 50 letters published over about a four-year period. And I'd write one or two letters a week. So I... And I really got into a heavy correspondence with the DC editor, Julia Schwartz. Um, and I, my letters went from, I really like this story, to I really like this story because, to, you know, I really like this story, but it would have been a little better if you'd done X, to, you know, how about if I try writing a story for you? And Unbeknownst to me, the field was desperate for new writers. Um, I'm 17 years old, and Schwartz answers, sure, give it a try. And I sold my second script, third script. I wrote two scripts that he rejected, and then he bought the third one. And um, just before I graduated from high school, I'm now 18 years old, and I took that money from the the sale of that one script and used it to just suddenly fly myself to New York and lived in New York for the summer before I started college uh, and wrote and, and got slowly more and more work each year as I went through school. You uh, you uh, had a lot of guts, it sounds like, uh, providing story ideas and a lot of courage. It, uh, who were some of your favorite characters growing up? Well, I was always a Batman fan. Um, I, 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 and I guess my second favorite character at the time was Green Lantern. 
I can't ex- I can I can explain why I like Batman. I can't explain why I like Green Lantern. <laughs> Green Lantern's a little more space opera, but he's yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> the, the I I guess the the thing about Green Lantern was the idea that he was connected to this this galactic wide network of heroes. Um and that there was a there was more than just him. There was there was a whole whole family of them. Um, Batman I liked because he was always right on the edge. And in my version of Batman, he the the reason why he's heroic is he goes to the edge but doesn't cross the line. Sure. Um, other other writers treat the character differently, um, uh, but that was that was my my version of it. Um, I had collected Batman comics as a teenager and had a complete collection of all the run of the Batman comic and 95% of the detective comics that featured Batman. Um, so I was totally familiar with how the character had started out and then evolved over time. And I had my favorite periods and my least favorite periods and all that fan stuff. And, uh, uh, and so I, every chance I had to write a Batman story, I leapt to it. And the favorite story I wrote at that time during DC Comics was the four years I worked for them was working with Neil Adams on a Batman Christmas story. Well, that's probably where, the, the most reprinted story that I've, I ever did. That's where we've got to start then, if you will, is we've been giving a lot of love to Neil Adams on the podcast lately. Tragically, we just recently lost Neil, but he's such an incredible talent. And his work on these X-Men books we're reviewing is just gorgeous. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it really is. They they introduce him into the book by saying, welcome the penciling wizardry of Neil Adams. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Neil and your working relationship with him. Well, he was kind of like my big brother. Um, I was 18, he was 25, but he had started out working professionally when he was 17 himself. helping and I learned later support his mother who was a single mom um I didn't know it at the time uh but when I met him uh he he was one of the few artists that actually worked in the office at DC um almost everybody else worked at home but he couldn't afford to work at home because he didn't have the space so uh he worked in the office and uh in hanging out, we discovered we were both comics fans, uh, but he was clearly much more experienced and uh, gave me a lot of, um, I guess you would call them social tips um, and also uh, professional tips. So oh, the first story that I got published, he drew was the Spectre in the Spectre and a wild we're featuring wildcat as a guest star we just talked to uh jam de mateus on the podcast about specter uh, a minute ago uh, if you for those of you that are listening in chronological order now you transitioned after a few years from dc to marvel tell me about that uh decision to move and then i want to talk about some of your classic marvel character creations today sure well um What I enjoyed doing the most with my writing at DC was was developing the characters, and uh, 
I started getting complaints from my editor that I was writing too much like Marvel. And, <laughs> and, and I guess uh, being young and arrogant, I said, well, maybe I'm in the wrong place. Now, I knew Roy Thomas, the editor at Marvel. I mean, the actual, the de facto editor, Stan still had his had the title, but he wasn't actually doing the work. Um, Roy was doing the day-to-day -day editing. And I knew Roy socially. In fact, I knew him a little bit distantly through correspondence before I started writing um, in our fan days. And uh, he had had me write a couple of non-superhero stories for Marvel that Marvel never had a never seemed to be able to successfully market anything other than their superheroes so they disappeared um, so I knew him I got a little bit familiar with working in, in the different way that Marvel worked compared to DC work but when I um, so when I started feeling un, unhappy at at DC, I went to Roy and said, you know, I was open to doing some work for him. And he immediately said, well, we could use you on this and use you on that. And I said, sure, fine. And um, it happened very quickly. I I started doing Iron Man instantly. Um, Kazar came along pretty soon thereafter. And I was, for the next four or five years, I was writing on the average three stories a month. Amazing. Uh, we were just joined by our other guest host today. We had us some sound issues at the beginning. Uh, welcome to Mr. Evan Feldman. How are you, Evan? I'm doing all right. I hope everything's working well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sound, you sound just great. Uh, do you want to take the next question? Go ahead. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm a big history muff. Uh, buff, sorry. Uh, when it comes to, uh, we, won't, we won't respond to that. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I would love to know your thoughts on uh, on Roy Thomas, just in terms of as a leader and in his hit. I've done so much reading on him, and yeah, I would just love to know what your take on Since I've known Roy for over 50 years, I think you need to be a little more specific. What was uh, your working relationship? Uh, oh, go ahead, Evan. Sorry? Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, so you approached him for work because uh, you wanted to switch to Marvel because you felt that's where uh, you, your writing style would best be. Right. What was his his take on? Uh, was he just well, Marvel at the know. time, and I can only speak about Marvel in nineteen, of I course. guess nineteen seventy seventy one. Um, uh, had a very different attitude towards its writers. They they weren't into developing talent they were into exploiting it <laughs> um, and so you sank or swam i mean you were given work they did they were it was the same with the artists um you either succeeded and and you were given another assignment or you failed and you you weren't um and it was pretty pretty cut and dried i mean there was a little bit of ambiguity but not a lot um, and so Roy made that very clear up front that, um, you know, while he was giving me Iron Man to write, you know, I had to do I had to do it well or I wouldn't be writing it anymore. Uh, and 
fortunately, I met enough of their standards to keep working there for a while. I got to interview Roy a few months back, and basically he gave me the understanding that if you were selling the book, I will leave you alone. And if you are not, then I will be a very hands-on editor. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I got very, I, I was working in the second tier, which interestingly enough, because, I mean, I'm going to divert myself for a moment. All the, all the first tier Marvel comics were licensed to the movies back when Marvel was not the Marvel that it is today. And so when Marvel Studios started up, all they could do was exploit their secondary characters, like Iron Man, like Ant-Man. Well, that was the stuff I was writing, was the secondary, you know, the secondary characters. Um, so I, I go around saying I wrote Iron Man, I wrote Ant-Man, like that's a big thing. <laughs> When actually it was not the big thing. I was not a first-tier writer at Marvel. I was a second-tier and sometimes third-tier writer at Marvel. My colleagues, uh, Len Wein and Mark Wolfman and Jerry Conway, were all doing, we all hung out with each other, were all doing much better than I was. But I enjoyed, I enjoyed the environment. I enjoyed working there. The only thing I didn't enjoy was New York City. Um, so I figured my my minor claim to fame was that I was the first writer to actually work from outside of New York, work through the mail. Um, every other writer had to bring their stuff in in person. <laughs> well, as a fellow writer uh, who is unfortunately in New York City, hi. Um, <laughs> I love to. I, I've lived there twice, and I I love to visit. That is what it should be. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, Mike, I was just wondering, um, first of all, thank you for coming out and talking with us. I am really curious to learn more about um, what you said earlier about writing styles between DC and Marvel. Could you elaborate a little further on the difference between the two? So DC was very traditional in and the writing was sort of imitated screenwriting or television writing or stage writing where where the writer was responsible for describing the, the pictures and writing the dialogue so that uh if you look at a, a dc comic script from the time it it would be panel one and then there would be a scene description and then there would be Batman Balloon 1, Batman Balloon 2, Robin Balloon 3. Um, Marvel had a very different approach uh, that they, and this was out of necessity of Stan Lee having to write all the comics, virtually all the comics in no time whatsoever, um, that everything was focused on the artwork. So the artist was responsible for pacing the story visually on, on each page. The writer was responsible for creating the overall narrative, um, the story arc, um, but it was, it, was, it was more or less a, a very generic description of what would happen in a, in a sequence. And, and maybe there, a scene might get described, a key scene might get described, but the artist was responsible for breaking this down panel by panel, page by page. And then when it was actually drawn in pencil, 
it came back, the artwork was brought back to the writer who then filled in the dialogue. Well, I found this, A, a lot faster, so I made more money. <laughs> B, it was also, I thought, made for better comics. Um, that the the story and the art was much more integrated, where when I was writing it screenplay style, I never knew, with with rare exceptions, I I could never really anticipate how the artist was going to draw the story, and and more often than not, the artist had a, interpreted my words differently than I saw the pictures in my own head. I had some exceptions to that. I mean, working with Neil Adams was one. I Neil was always had better ideas for pictures than I did. Um, the other one was Gil Kane, who I was one of my favorite artists as a fan, and I knew Gil's work in instantly. And so I could write a Gil Kane scene, and he would draw it the way that I knew he was going to draw it. And so my my. Gil Kane stories at DC were better than my other stories, eventually. A lot of it comes down to your working relationship with the specific artist. We've been talking on the pod recently. Uh, Stanley and Roy Thomas both seem to have a very tight rein on what they wanted their art to look like until Jim Steranko and then Neil Adams came along and they had a lot more creative license to do pencils and panels in different ways. Now, you're best known well, to me, me. Let me interrupt you. Oh, that's yeah, not, please. That's not correct. I mean, the Stan Marvel was built on Jack Kirby doing what he wanted. <laughs> that's what that's kind of what I meant. Any uh any writer after after Kirby, after Kirby. and uh and uh, a couple of others the, the early influential artists, they were kind of told to emulate Kirby or Ditko, whereas uh whereas whereas it seems like Neil Adams had a lot more creative reign. Now I uh, I used to work on the Marvel handbooks, uh, and it was my job to kind of read the early stuff and make sense of the character histories. And Mike, you're best known to me as uh, as the Iron Man guy from the '70s. You kind of had the first big epic run on Iron Man, escalating the stakes, giving us a lot of stories that took him from kind of that '60s silly guy <laughs> into a more char a character with more high stakes. Now, for our X Men listeners, and this is an X Men podcast. Your use of the character Sunfire in Iron Man was a lot of fun uh, and a place where a lot of people don't expect to find him. Tell us about your choice to use uh, Sunfire. Well, now now you're dealing with memories from that are 50 years old, and I'm afraid right. I don't remember why I picked that character. I liked how he looked, and I must have enjoyed I, – I, I think it was Roy that had written him before, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't remember. I can't – I don't have a clear memory of that. Um, so I, I liked, I liked the look, um, I, and I figured there was a good way to contrast him with Iron Man, but beyond that, I'm afraid I don't remember much. Yeah, no, we're, we're going to review some of those stories on the podcast in the not so distant future. Uh, but you got to use him as a representative from the agent of Japan. Uh, Stark was always kind of high stakes in competition with other countries, Russia being one of the big ones as different armored characters came through. Uh, it's it's a really great read. It holds up. I like your use of that character. And then, of course, you're also indelibly associated with your work with Kesar, uh, including giving us uh, Bobby Morse, uh, who was initially known as the Huntress and later went on to become the very popular feminist character, Mockingbird. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work with Bobby. Well, I I, I knew that I, I, I always tried to make my female characters stronger than before. Um, 
And I, I remember enjoying, enjoying Bobby and trying to make something work with her. Um, but it was always tough to figure out how to have a girlfriend for Kazar uh, because he's either in he's either in the jungle, which so you have one kind of companion, or he's in the city and you have another kind of companion. And the way Marvel liked to have him go back and forth. And so I, I, it was really difficult to make it work. Um, but I, I enjoyed her. I, I, I think, I, as I recall, I wrote a, a standalone Bobby Morse story in one of the black and white comics. Um, I think it's called Marvel Super Action, if I'm remembering right. But it's been a long time I, since I've read it. I don't remember the story, but I remember writing it. Yeah, you gave us a character. So often the women back then were to be rescued or uh, kind of objectified. But you gave us a, a woman who was a super spy and a scientist, which was such a great change uh, for the types of characters being introduced at the time. Well, I grew up with five sisters. I I wasn't going to let them uh, let them down. <laughs> I also have five sisters. How was that? <laughs> Fortunately, I was the oldest. <laughs> Uh, you also uh, created some of our favorite characters ever. Uh, one of them uh, has come on or, or gone on to become a, a lesbian icon in some ways, although she didn't come out of the closet for many years after you used her. And that's the character Moondragon, who you initially introduced under the name Madame McEvil, which, yeah. <laughs> which is delightful. Uh, tell us about your work with Moondragon. Well, um, you know, I didn't even learn she was Moondragon until about four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, and again, I'm afraid I don't remember this much specifically about her creation. Um, sorry. No, that's okay. She comes I'm in. Sure, and you know, the, the people that have that have gone on to make her Moon Dragon are much more responsible for that character than I am. She uh, she comes in as a bald villainess who's just very arrogant, very bitchy, very uh, like I know what I want and I will take it, uh, which was rare for female villains at the time. Right. Well, and the and the artist would have been the one to make her bald. I don't remember. I don't. I think I was surprised and I liked it. I thought it was a good look. Um, and then the two characters that I uh, that I know you are most. Uh, famous for co-creating are Drax the Destroyer and uh, Thanos, of course, uh, who have gone on to become huge characters through the Marvel movies uh, and used over and over and over again. Tell us a little bit about your work with Jim Starlin and the creation of those characters, if you can recall. Well, I remember a little bit more about this. Um, I met Jim when we were housemates for three months in Staten Island, New York. Um, and he was he was in New York from Detroit. He had gotten out of the Navy and was trying to break into comics as an artist. And his memory and my memory are a little slightly different. Um, I vaguely remember him showing me his portfolio of characters, and I said, maybe we could do this some, something with this in Iron Man. He remembers showing the characters to Roy Thomas and Roy saying, why don't you work with Mike on Iron Man? But why Roy, Roy wouldn't have only, would only have suggested Iron Man because he knew there was some personal connection between us. But I give 
I give Starlin 95% credit for creating these characters. He, he had the story lines totally mapped out in his head. Um, I did very little to create the stories. Um, all that my was responsible for was creating the dialogue. So I gave the characters a bit of life um, in the way they talk to each other. But uh, Starlin had, had did all the, all the hard work. And he was the one that, of course, developed them over time and made Thanos into the villain that he became worthy, worthy of being in a movie. What's it been like to watch these characters become these movie icons, like just known around the entire world? Well, since I left comics over 20 years ago it, and have been doing other things since then, it's, it's extremely bizarre. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to reconnect back to the, the guy that wrote comics. Uh, and uh, so I, 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 have, I have some pride of ownership but it's mostly bemusement um, that the world has changed to the, to the degree that it's even possible for somebody to write a comic and 40 years later it becomes a movie. I, I still have, I, I, I can very clearly remember the moment that I was in New York at Christmas time, um, and I don't remember the year, but, but I saw a, a billboard in Times Square uh, with just the bat symbol. They didn't explain it. They just had this giant billboard with the bat symbol. And I said, we've, we've arrived. And sure enough, that was the first big Batman movie that came out four months, five months later that transformed the field and paved the way for Marvel to, to follow in its footsteps and do it better. Some some they did it better. Some some they did not. <laughs> what was it like to work with Jim Starlin? I know he's just known as just an icon in this industry in so many ways, but, uh, with his work with uh, Thanos and Warlock and so many others. Well, um, it was very easy because he knew what he wanted, and he just needed help gaining the confidence to write the stuff himself. Uh, Later on, once he was writing, he needed help beating his deadlines, so he would come back to me and I'd work with him on, on another story or two uh, in Captain Marvel. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed the thinking that he had. We, we had common backgrounds and the stuff that we enjoyed as fans. So his stories were easy to grasp and easy to work with. Um, and I zero personal conflict at all we were we got along great uh rohan you had a question i do uh i actually just love this um so actually you you just mentioned captain marvel who is currently one of my favorite film characters right now and um speaking of all of your sorry it's a different captain marvel oh i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> there's a few <laughs> There's a few. I was like, wait, stand by. Let me lay reassess that statement. Miss Marvel. Never mind, wrong Marvel. There's too many. <laughs> Sorry. I'm 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 relatively new to the fandom world, so I'm still like 
exploring and diving into things. But um, get all this stuff straight, or you'll 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 ejects me up. I know on site, it's it's quite a fact. I've I've, I've noticed these mistakes. <laughs> well, I can I can think of seven <clears throat> Captain Marvels off the top of my head. You're doing just fine, Rohan. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, I guess then, Mike, um, I will pivot back to a previous thing you mentioned about um, strong female characters. I'm wondering um, of any of them you've written or if any that you're seeing right now, are there any like favorites you would definitely uh, recommend to newbies like me or to anybody else? Oh, I really enjoy the Ms. Marvel that appeared first in the comics and now on television. Uh, I think that's a wonderful coming-of-age story um, uh, and reflects the country we live in now as opposed to the way it was 50 years ago. Um, and that, so uh, that's, that would be my favorite char female Marvel character right now. Amazing. What other what other female characters uh, have you created over the years? I am not familiar with DC work, but you talked about making uh, you wanted to make your female characters more dynamic than your male well, characters in some ways. When I started my own publishing company, um, I had this idea that I was actually only able to do once, but I created a character called Stephanie Starr, and the artist Giordano worked with me to draw it, um, and I enjoyed that um, um, but unfortunately well fortunately for me but unfortunately for the character I never really found the time or the enthusiasm to pursue it um, that I remember I created the company in order to allow artists and writers to do things they couldn't do at Marvel and DC at the time this being the early 70s and that was one of the things that you, you could not do a female lead. Mm. You know, so I, I wanted to do a female lead. So that's what I did. We, uh, we've been chatting with a few different creators who had ideas about female characters. Uh, and it's, it's almost feels like until about 15 years ago, it, they weren't allowed to have more complex storylines or they certainly weren't as equally represented. And there's been a big, a big change in the field where it's not just men writing comics anymore now. Mm. It's a lot of people from different representations. And I think we're seeing the benefit of that with characters like Kamala Khan, as you reference. Uh, what's it been like to watch that industry change? Or, or what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Well, I've been, I've stopped following comics when they stopped sending me freebies. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't afford comic books. Um, but uh uh, so I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm limited to just watching what's on television, watching what's coming out in the movies. And I'm astonished with how pervasive this attitude, the superhero attitude is culturally. And I wish I could explain it better. I don't know what it is about our times that's called forth superheroes. Now, everybody and everybody wants a superhero. So that's why you're seeing the diversity of characters um, that we're seeing today is because it's not just one thing anymore. We're everybody in the country wants to be a the hero. 
Yeah, we uh we need to see ourselves reflected in the pages that we're reading. I think it's so crucial to see yourselves uh, reflected back at you. If it's hard to just accept white males as all of the <laughs> heroes for everyone represented in the American public or in the world consciousness. Uh, Evan, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, I, what have you been doing, Maya, since uh, leaving? comics you said that you left comics about 20 years ago i did some light searching and it sounds like you've just been doing some well, absolutely amazing I, without talking about the, the five other careers i've had in comics <laughs> the thing I, was, I did the most was run an agency for artists which i did for about 20 years and then it collapsed slowly and inevitably um, and I went through a couple of years, horrible years of unemployment. Um, and came out of what I described as I went through a wormhole and came out and became a union rep at the University of California, um, which I did for, I, I worked for a union of research scientists and research technicians. And, uh, I can explain that at greater length as to how that occurred, but it was it's very different from comic books, yeah. completely different stories. Uh, the one connection was the i the idea that my my the favorite strip that I enjoyed most writing was Justice League of America, mm. in retrospect, because I enjoyed putting all the character all these different characters into one story where they had to work together to to overcome their the obstacles in front of them. Um, and, and that's the definition of a union. So um, I, there was that connection. Um, the, and then and I spent 10 years doing that. Uh, and then I went through another wormhole about 10 years ago where I retired from that job and went to seminary and became a United Methodist minister, which I've been, which I was ordained on the day on the day I was eligible to retire. So I retired. I retired instantly. <laughs> and now that's what I am. That's that's wonderful. amazing. Yeah. So if you can figure out the through line of that story, I I, I welcome your thoughts. I I looking at it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, you told me just before we started recording, and I actually had to look her up, but you are married to the incredible Lee Mars, who just reaching, re reading through uh, her work is amazing. Now, I do know her through your work with Starreach. Uh, tell us a little bit about Starreach, and then tell us about your wife's incredible career. Well, first off, she's my partner. Uh, we are not married. Yes. Uh, we've been together 44 years now, but it's one day at a time. Um, ask me that question again. Yeah, so tell us about Star Reach, and then I would oh, love to hear okay. about Lee's work. Star Reach and Lee. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I found myself inspired by people like like Jim Steranko to and Wally Wood doing their own comics. Um, and I was also inspired by the underground comics field that was centered in San Francisco near me. Um, and I got through a, a retailer, I got to know a lot of those folks 
in that field. Um, so I got the bright idea that, well, if you can do these personal stories, these political stories, these social stories in the underground, why can't people do Marvel comics and DC comics with this attitude? Um, and so I went to the people, I friends of mine that I knew. It started out with Jim Starlin and, and uh, Howard Chaikin. And... Um, uh, said, hey, how would you like to do your own comics? And I'll pay you. Um, and they said, sure, fine. And that's how it launched. I wound up being able to, I, I was inventing a, I was inventing a business. I didn't have any real role models. So I made a lot of mistakes that ultimately were fatal. Um, but I got five good years in. Um, Lee was one of the artists local underground cartoonist that I met. She lived just a couple of cities away from me. Um, and uh, she became one of my contributors um, and slowly evolved. I mean, you, you can watch the, the evolution of her stories over the four or five year period. She got it really, really good towards the end. Um, and went on and I did a brief period of uh, of packaging stories and she did some uh, color stories for heavy metal and for Epic Illustrated uh, that were the some of her best heroic comics material. Mm. Um, more recently, now that she's retired, she's drawing back to drawing comics again, uh, this time for love instead of money. Uh, and so she's done her Me Too story. She's doing a story on reproductive rights as we speak. She's on her, got a deadline this week to finish that uh, and has done three or four different things. Um, so I'm quite happy to know her. Well, tell Lee not to be surprised when she gets an email from me asking for an interview, because I think she sounds incredible. <laughs> I just I just looked her up and it looks like uh, it looks like she also contributed to Marvel for their crazy magazines back, well, way back in the day. But she was also a major uh, contributor. To, worked with Howard Chaikin a lot. Sure. Um, Howard was the highlight of my agency. Was I represented Stuck Rubber Baby, um, which should be the movie uh, a Netflix film. <laughs> and so if you know anybody, anybody at Netflix, tell them to make that movie. Um, and uh, uh, she worked with worked with Howard on gay comics, worked in women's comics, the women, part of the Women's Comics Collective. Um, she identifies as bisexual. Uh, and Yeah, she makes a great interview. She's a better interviewer than me. She's very funny. She sounds just incredible. I uh, I will definitely reach out. I'm actually a big Howard Chicken fan as well. Howard's done some uh, incredible X-Men work over the years. Uh, what are you working on now currently, Mike? Or is there anything you'd like to kind of plug or talk about the work that you're doing? Well, I've discovered that there's a universe of comic collectors that like to buy comics with signatures on them. So... I, I have an I have an agent in in of all places Honolulu. His name is Daniel Brown, and if you want a, a complete set of star reaches that have been signed by me, they're from my personal files. He's the guy to get a hold of. 
Okay. Uh, will you provide me perhaps in an email with that contact information and I can make sure people know where to find him? Yes. Uh, Mike, I think you are phenomenal. I think you've had a really big in, in, uh, impact on this industry. I know you're, you're, you're saying I haven't thought about some of this stuff in a long time, but these uh, comics are kind of going through a revolution right now, particularly with queer readers, I think. We look back to the origins of some of these favorite characters. Mockingbird, again, is a feminist icon. Moondragon is a lesbian icon. As we look back to where these characters came from, uh, Thanos uh, is, of course, just the biggest thing at Marvel, uh, bigger than Magneto these days, and Magneto's always been enormous. Uh, and you, you've had a, a, a pretty powerful impact. I, uh, I won't ask because I know better, but I hope you're getting a check for every person who sees these films. <laughs> I, I get a small check. It's enough to keep me happy. That's good. That's good. Not, 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 a, not as much as I'm worth, but, you know. It is, uh, it is a great honor to, uh, to interview you today, sir. Thank you so much for your valuable time and for all of your work in this incre incredible industry. Well, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank I you look so forward, much. I look forward to hearing the interview when it's broadcast. Wonderful. We're gonna we're gonna follow it up with a whole bunch of gay political conversations about the X Men after this. <laughs> You'll enjoy yourself. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a beautiful day. Nice to meet you. Bye, Bye now. See you later. Well, Mike had to step out, but we are thrilled to uh, continue with uh, Rohan and Evan for our issue review for today. We didn't get a chance back at the beginning, but let me have our listeners get a chance to know both of you a little bit better. Tell me your gender pronouns, where people might know you from, and I'd love to hear kind of what your connection to the X-Men is as a fan and as a creative, if you'd like. Uh, so, uh, Rohan, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, my name is Rohan Joli. Uh, pronouns are they, them, sha, and tha. Um, folks will probably know me more in the activism um, spaces. Um, I'm a community organizer here in New York. Um, my main focus is on Black Asian solidarity. Um, two years ago, I founded an organization, the Blazing March. Um, and we build solidarity through education, um, mutual celebration. Um, and since 2020, we have evolved into rallies um, across the country. There have been rallies in New Haven, Los Angeles, Chicago. We have a couple in the works in Washington, D.C. Uh, dialogue for a Houston rally. We're also looking at some international rallies coming up the next few years. Um, I've spoken at conferences in Seattle. I just came back from <laughs> um, a presentation and a few performances, few performances in Zurich, Switzerland. So if I'm a little jet lagged, I'm very sorry. I flew in last night. <laughs> um, connection to the Marvel Universe. So I am, um, as folks will um, have probably heard, I am pretty new. Uh, to the world of comic books. Um, I definitely grew up on the X-Men films. No one judge me, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, I didn't really get into comics and cosplay until I saw the Into the Spider-Verse film. Um, I know we touched a little on diversity in the conversation, but for me, it was like the first time seeing like a positive um, representation for Black and Latino children, because I feel like oftentimes we only see, like, 
especially black boys in media being taught like very like harmful things like your only role in the story is the criminal or you're in prison and here is a superhero. So um, Miles Morales is what got me into this whole thing. <laughs> Absolutely fair. Uh, my husband Mike and I were at FlameCon recently. Uh, Rohan was walking around in Spider-Man uh, cosplay <laughs> and we started up a conversation. I was so impressed by uh, not only how you carry yourself, but the type of work you're doing and your passion for it. Uh, I'm just thrilled to have you on the pod for the first of what I hope is more than one time. Uh, it's it's uh, great to see you. Now, Evan's someone I've interacted with more frequently through social media, through Instagram. Evan, yes. uh, uh, same questions to you. Gender pronouns, where do people know you from, and what's your connection to the X-Men industry? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, first off, gender pronouns, um, all, so just he, him, unfortunately. Not interesting, but... Um, um, an actor, uh, probably haven't seen me in anything yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what I do. And my first introduction to the X-Men, again, I'm old. That was the 92 Fox Kids cartoon <laughs> way back in the day. Yes! Um, still have, to this very day, I still have the theme song on loop in my head. What can I say? It's a banger. Um, and, uh... Yeah, I'm just a huge X-Men fan. I'm actually working on my own kind of X-Men project um, and uh, managed to meet and become good friends with a whole bunch of different X-Men accounts on the interwebs, and including yours. So thank yeah. you for that. It's so good to have you here. I was once, back when I was single, I once uh, went on a date with a guy and we went back to his place and we started watching X-Men cartoons but we ended up making out and then fooling around and the DVD that was playing ended and then it would just re you know how on DVDs it would just replay the same intro song over and over again. <laughs> so for like an hour and a half, it was just to the point where af after I heard that song. Perfect makeup music, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's never any, any theme song. If you are, if it's just stuck on the DVD uh, player, it's just never a pleasant thing. Okay. So we're going to jump into. To hook up to. <laughs> I love it. I've even shown it to my children now. No, we're uh, we're all big fans, uh, and in fact, I'll I'll preemptively announce this: the next episode after today, when we go into X Men Fifty Nine, is going to feature the talents of Jerry Gaylord, who's one of the uh, major artists on the X Men animated series revival that's coming out uh, soon. Yeah, Jerry's just phenomenal. Uh, so today, we're going to be spending time on X Men Number Fifty Eight. This is a, a dense read in the middle of a big epic storyline. So uh, for the two of you just jumping into the middle of all this, I hope you're following everything okay because it's a, it's kind of an intense story. Uh, this is a this is from July 1969. It's written by Roy Thomas, uh, art by Neil Adams, as talked about. Uh, Tom Palmer's on inks. Tom also just died uh, just in weeks prior to our recording this episode. Uh, Artie Simak on letters and then Stanley, of course, as editor. This uh, issue and episode will both be called Mission Murder. Uh, let me open the book. And, and Evan and Rohan, I know this is your first time on the show. Feel free to just kind of chime in if you have observations, ideas, anything you want to discuss is on the table. We can... Uh, make fun of art. We can lust after characters. We can have political commentary. Whatever you feel is uh -huh. uh, is completely fine to talk about. Uh, so hey, I would never make fun of Neil Adams' art. <laughs> put that out there. Once in a I while, will be lusting after sure. Barbie. 
So as we go here, uh, we are kind of finishing. Uh, uh, Bobby and Hank have just left Egypt to run home and check on Lorna Dane, who they've discovered is missing because weirdly they had a camera in her apartment. I don't know why, but it was weird. <laughs> There is uh, there is an element of the sentinels uh, attacking through the door. Uh, they have all kinds of capabilities. They are firing tendrils, ensnaring beasts. Uh, Bobby is pretty impressive here in his action sequences. He is freezing cables. He is uh, destroying sentinels. He's flying through the air on surfboards. He's really impressive in the way that the art is. But what I'm really impressed with in the storytelling in this issue more than anything is the way that they have interlaid it. Roy Thomas has given us a bunch on page two and three. He's given us a bunch of diagonal panels. Every panel has a television screen on it. And we see Larry Trask, who is the son of Bolivar Trask, the creator of the Sentinels, uh, kind of orating, kind of, uh, I don't mean to be super political, but kind of Fox News style. You see this talking head guy just kind of <laughs> shouting, shouting at everybody who is out there saying why his agenda is important. And uh, before we even continue, I'm going to say, I mean, there have been whole books written about these types of topics right now, but we have an era where someone has a big giant political agenda, some sort of dangerous something that they want to get across. This has been going on for generation after generation in our country and others. They will reveal something to the public and then say, here is why, because of this fact that I'm sharing with you, these salacious facts, these big crazy things that are happening, this is why we need funding for this whatever agenda. And then there's always the part of the agenda that you don't know about. So there's public fear mongering. They're showing things that we should be afraid of. A great example of this is a couple of years ago when they needed more votes on the Republican side, when they started advertising how a caravan of migrants was coming toward the border. And who knows in that, who knows who's in that caravan? As soon as the voting cycle ends, there's no more discussion about any kind of caravan any longer. We see this type of thing. Uh, there's recently been monkeypox, which is spreading largely through the LGBTQ community because of sexual activity. But then they start labeling it as a gay disease in the media. You start seeing things branded in particular ways. And we want to welcome uh, listeners from all political persuasions here. But we do see this used on both sides. One of my favorite things to do, not my favorite, it's annoying actually, is whenever there's a giant news story, I will jump on both Fox News and CNN to see how they're reporting the story. And one will take an extreme side on one case and the other will take an extreme side on the other case. And it's really fascinating. There's a John Mayer song in which he has a line. It's the song Waiting for the World to Change. There's a line where he says, when they own the information, they can spin it how they want, uh, if I'm getting mm -hmm. that lyric right. And we're certainly seeing that here. This is a really dense story from Roy Thomas showing that type of political uh, influence in a comic book format, which is not something we see a lot in the 60s X-Men comics. So there's some density here. And I'll, uh, I would love to hear, uh, Evan and Rohan, your thoughts on this as we go through this. So as Iceman and Beast are fighting the Sentinel in the apartment, we see uh, Larry Trask on the TV, and I'm going to read his speech out loud as he's addressing the public. Now, as I was saying, we all know the strange, uncanny powers wielded by the evil entities called mutants. But this time, those powers will not save them. This time, they battle a foe far stronger than any they have faced before. For I have improved upon the mammoth androids built by my father, Bolivar Trask, the man whom the X-Men murdered. I have redesigned my father's creations, equipped them to adapt instantaneously to whatever force they might encounter so that they might fight fire with fire, speed with endurance, and cold with scalding, shattering steam. In short, ladies and gentlemen, 
these the sentinels must and shall prevail and he goes on from there but we see this very clear agenda message being delivered as the fight sequence is happening behind him now bolivar trust was not killed by the x-men bolivar designed the sentinels who then became sentient and captured Bolivar Trask, and he died at the end of the battle. Also, he was an anthropologist, not a robotics designer, but, you know, uh, we also see a major change to the Sentinels here. Lawrence, or Larry, has updated them to be self-replicating. They can adapt now. You hit them with one kind of attack, and you can't do the same kind of attack again because they learn as they go. Uh, we're going to keep talking about the Sentinels, but uh, Evan and Rohan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea uh, behind what Larry is doing here and some of the some of the art. Uh, Evan, go ahead. Oh, Evan, you're muted. Yeah. Um, so first off, being, uh, again, a longtime X-Men fan, I found it particularly interesting that apparently this is where the defensive mechanisms of Sentinels originally came for, from. I'm assuming this is the first kind of appearance. Of yeah, yeah. This is this being is, able to do that, right? This is basically only the second appearance of the Sentinels. So yes. Wow. Yeah, and and the second thing is, uh, as a story, I yeah completely concur. I, usually, you wouldn't get this kind of story until at least uh, when Claremont comes on, but this was earlier on and and amazing. Claremont picks up on these themes and then makes them magnified because this is what makes the X-Men more compelling than anything. But yeah, the Sentinels in their original appearance seem a little bit like toy soldiers. They're maybe seven feet tall where these are starting to look at like 10, 12, 13 feet yeah. tall. These are bigger, they're scarier. These are the Sentinels that uh, Chris Claremont will pick up. And the Sentinels here appear in the next couple of issues and then they show up in the Avengers in a, in a run of comics written by Roy Thomas as well. And then Claremont picks them up. So yeah, this is one of the earliest hybrids. Uh, Rohan, what did you want to share? Yeah, uh, for me, like I was really struck. Um, you mentioned earlier this like dichotomy between media portrayal versus like what happens in real life. So like speaking on the TV and you know the mutants being kind of demonized. I feel like a lot of us in the queer community um, can really resonate with that. Especially given the history of how, I mean, I was, full disclosure, I was reading this to mostly queer lens. You're like, how is this gay? Um, <laughs> which is, you know, on brand. Um, and, um, and also for myself, I couldn't help but think about um, what's happening, especially in the Asian community right now with Stop Asian Hate and... Um, how our previous White House occupant really used a lot of TV and media platforms to kind of demonize Asian people, sure. which then results in like a huge wave of like anti-Asian violence. Um, so like for me, it's like, I'm, I'm thinking about that and be like, wow, like the Sentinels for me in this moment really represented um, the actions of like lots of like white supremacist structures we have to deal with in our daily lives. Um, and that's something I really just had to like hang on to and think about. And I was like, ooh, this is actually a really deep critique of society that I don't think many people were kind of ready to talk about. And it's a little kind of cool, but also kind of sad that it's still an issue today. <laughs> this is this is one of those comics that really draws the readers in. This is why disenfranchised populations 
feel at home or feel represented in the X-Men. Now, nearly everyone in this book is white with the exception of one Egyptian character. We'll talk about that in a minute. And nearly everyone in this book is male with the exception of Jean Grey and Lorna Dane. But we still see this story or the idea of people being hunted. The X-Men are heroes and the readers are reading a book about an agenda politically backed by the government to hunt down these heroes and contain them. This is not a story you see in the Fantastic Four or in the Avengers, unless there's a lot of interpretation of the way things uh, with things go. Uh, but this uh, this is why people love the X-Men so much, because they feel that representation. It's it's powerful. So uh, Beast is being captured. Uh, Bobby is still fighting. He creates some ice duplicates of himself, which is not something we see him do often in the 60s. Uh, you get these hints that Bobby's like definitely an Omega level mutant uh, because he has these powers. The Sentinel's confused. It doesn't know which duplicate to attack. It turns out none of them are the real Bobby because he's hiding around the corner. In the current comics, we see Bobby will form, uh, they're often called ice golems, whole armies of people, or he'll make himself giant size. And so these are hints of his uh, incredible power here. Uh, the uh, the diatribe on the media continues. Uh, uh, there's, there's mention from Larry Trask that he will definitely not see the Sentinels rebel against humanity because he the one controlling them. And he's backed by this federal judge, Chalmers. And you get this idea, if you guys are familiar with the concept of McCarthyism, back in the 1950s, and this is clearly the era this is drawing upon, although this came out during the civil rights era, where we had uh, we had political ads being taken out against communists. There were ads that would run in the newspaper that said things like, if you see a woman reading a paper alone, she's probably a communist. You need to report it. I mean, just, just bizarre, scary things. There were prop propaganda videos being shared in school districts where they would say, if a man tries to talk to you in the park, he's probably gay and wants to molest you. You can find some of these on YouTube if you look at these old videos that were being spread around and the messages they were trying to share. So you create fear around a disenfranchised population, and then it gives you right to, to, uh, to stand up against them or discriminate against them, which is frankly what the Nazis did against the Jews mm -hmm. uh, to tremendous effect to the point of millions of deaths afterward. So uh, really scary oh. examples. Uh, Larry puts on this crazy hat that shows, look, I can still control the Sentinels. It's fine. And uh, Bobby runs in the other room to get some help. Uh, he uh, he freezes the Sentinel and they are both worried and realize we got to get out of here. We are being overwhelmed. That's kind of a quick summary of the first five pages. Do you guys have thoughts on anything I just shared or any uh, anything about the art or the characters you'd like to put in before we continue? Well, apparently, according to the 60s, all women are mutants. Um, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all gays are mutants. That's fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I have, you know, as a longtime Maxima fan, I could go on for hours just on the first five pages. So <laughs> I'll just, it's all good. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, uh, Rohan, do you want to think? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, do you want to take pages six through 10, kind of tell us what happens and some of your thoughts on the next part? Oh, man. So six through 10. Um, sure. No problem. So we see here, basically, um, <clears throat> Bobby is now chosen to be like the, the great sacrifice uh, to help Beast kind of get away um, from the Sentinels. He creates an igloo. <laughs> and I was like, that's a choice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, and by the time, um, so it gives uh, Beast enough time to kind of like escape, to get away. But then we see a sense now 
actually taken uh, Bobby. He has been kidnapped. And um, this is actually where I was trying to resonate a lot with this scene, because now we're seeing a beast kind of having this like, sort of like survivor's guilt, in my opinion. He's kind of like, I feel guilty for basically letting Bobby be the sacrifice when, you know, we're a team, let's do this together. Um, and so we are now flipping over to um, Scott and Jean and Angel and Beast is kind of phoning them like, hey, like the Sentinels, they took Bobby. Um, let's go rescue him. And just as a quick interjection, uh, the other three X-Men are still in Egypt. Havoc, or Alex, he's not named Havoc yet. Alex ran off because his power's activated and he's scared. And then he got captured by a Sentinel and they don't know. So they're still in Egypt looking for Alex. But, ah. Yeah, please go ahead. Right, so newbie Rohan over here. <laughs> um, so they're all like, we gotta go save Bobby. And Angel's like, um, I'm just gonna fly. And Scott and Gina are like, hop on the plane with us. He's like, uh, let's just save time and be flying ahead. <laughs> um, but <laughs> unfortunately, he runs into Sentinel, zapping up the whole shebang. Um, but while this is happening, we are flipping back to Bobby's story. And Larry Trask is speaking with um, some of the media folks. And they're kind of like, oh, we're not sure how I felt the story arc right now. And Larry's like, no, keep going. Media's <laughs> um, great coverage to help spin the story and, and you know, help us further demonize these mutants. Um, and yeah, there's actually an experiment going on in the background. Um, yeah, I guess for me, what, um, apart from like the survivor's guilt, um, that Beast is going through, um, which I think, I guess for me, it was kind of like, um, a weird reminder of a lot of what folks were going through with, um, oh boy, um, the, uh, what would become the AIDS pandemic was still ongoing. And of course, um, more recently, the Club Pulse shootings. Um, and that's something that kind of just like helped me further like resonate with Beast and like his current like traumatic situation. Like, I was like, oh, Beast has a lot of trauma right now. It's it's kind of sad. Um, uh, yeah, those are kind of my thoughts around that. Um, I love people's input. In the current comics, Beast is the one causing the trauma. So he's he's gone a long way. There's there's recently a section, he's like the head of the CIA in the mutant nation Krakoa now. And there's a recent issue where a bunch of refugees who have been captured are delivered to their shores. And he's like, God, it would have been better for us politically if those refugees had not been brought here. Like we're supposed to create safety and like make them a home now. And ugh, this is not helping the agenda that I have. This is a, Beast has not had a nice journey over the last 60 years. But in this one, he's very worried about his friends. <laughs> that makes me think a lot about trauma cycles and people are like, you know, we talk about trauma cycles a lot in activism spaces, like how, how do we break trauma cycles? How do we, you know, impose trauma on other people? So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, Beast has become the monster now uh, in a very deliberate attempt. It's, it's been a slow descent into it's crazy. Ca character assassination, as far as I'm concerned. 
<laughs> but God oh, Angel yeah. looks pretty. Neil Adams draws such a pretty angel. Isn't he gorgeous? You know, it's the thighs for me. <laughs> <laughs> that was also, if I could just quickly, interesting to see, because this is a whole kind of, even though he later gets his look back, this is a whole pre-apocalypse, pre-traumatized angel that was kind of interesting to revisit for a minute there, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Angel Angel was this character until the 80s, until Apocalypse yeah. comes aboard. But there's always been hints of this dark side. Here we just get impatient <laughs> Angel. He's he's a, He doesn't do much here. He flies and then gets captured. <laughs> Wait, he even says something that stuck out to me knowing his darker nature. He says something... Um, I don't remember what it was, but it rang to me at least as being kind of dark, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The almost like like fatalism of like whatever we're trying yeah, to do. Yeah, the stage yes, is still, thank you. Like, you picked up on that too. Yes, it was yeah. a brief little, but yeah, it was definitely like, wow, wow, Warren, really. <laughs> so tell us what happens next, Rohan. Oh man, so um, Bobby is naked, and I was like, oh hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, did no one, how did no one see that he was gay? I'm confused. <laughs> um, but basically Larry Trask has found a way to take away mutant powers and Bobby has essentially lost them. Um, he tries to fight, Sentinel captures him, but he's like, I am weak and I can't do anything. And I am like, you are naked and that is fine. Um, many questions, not really. <laughs> But now we run into um, Alex, who will be in Havoc, as you mentioned earlier. Um, he is in Larry Trask's lair. And it's like a weird dun-dun-dun moment for me where I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, I believe this is the first time, uh, if anyone knows differently, let me know. I believe this is the first time we see technology that can cancel mutant powers. There are, there's the historic, like from the cartoon, like the collars they wear that block their power. Where you yeah. see characters put into like places where their powers don't work. We later, of course, see Forge famously create the gun that will take your powers away, which happens to Storm. Uh, but I believe this sure. is the first time. This mist will take away Bobby's powers for four hours completely. This is also the first appearance of the iconic Alex uh, costume. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Havoc, uh, it, it, it looks like... Uh, there's been a threat uh, of torturing Lorna Dane and uh, Havoc, although he doesn't know her, Alex, uh, Alex agrees to wear this containment suit. He's constantly absorbing cosmic rays and Larry Trask has designed the iconic suit that's of course designed by Neil Adams. The, the all black with the concentric circles, the weird headgear, the jewel on the forehead. His costume has never really variated from this in the last 60 years. And uh, and uh, Larry's also given him his code name Havoc. Havoc has agreed to wear this. It helps him control his powers. If he doesn't have it, two things can happen. Number one, his powers can increase to such a point where he will destroy shit. He recently destroyed an entire pyramid without meaning to. Or if his powers are blocked too much, then the character Ahmed Abdul, who's the living pharaoh, will then get more cosmic powers and turn into the living monolith. And so Alex has kind of accepted this suit as a way to block his powers. And this character over the last 60 years will occasionally have control of his abilities, but so often he has to rely on this type of suit to be able to use his powers or exist as a mutant. 
We're doing a whole trial of Havoc in a few weeks. You can hear more thoughts on this. But we get we get the iconic suit here, and we get the iconic uh, code name, of course, Havoc with a K. This is also the first iconic meeting between Havoc and Lorna Dane. Havoc jumps over to her. Uh, excuse me, Bobby jumps over to her, and he's like, "Oh, it's that girl that I pretended to date, so no one will think that I'm gay. Is she okay?" <laughs> She has green hair and Alex is like, well, clearly you know her already. And these two will famously fight for Lorna's affections over the years. But uh, but Lorna know, knows better than to date Bobby for long. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts on, uh, on Alex or Lorna or the triangle between the three of them? Yeah, so many interesting first just set up right here, right? Especially as an X-Men fan. Like, I... That is his classic suit. Yeah, there have been... but. It's also one of my favorites out of all of his looks. The fact that he both got that suit and the name from a villain, which I was unaware of, not his own music. But also the first made it between Lorna and Alex, and after that whole love triangle plays out, we all know who Lorna goes with for quite some time, right? But, um, so all... The other thing that I found really interesting about this is, again, growing up on the Fox Kids cartoon, there was an a particular episode, the only animated appearance of Iceman called Cold Comfort. Yes. It's all about Bobby trying to find his girlfriend, Lorna, who had disappeared. And meanwhile, it turns out she had met up with Alex. And the story plays out differently, but that's kind of the, the bones of it. Until literally I read this like last week. I thought that was all wholly original. But now I understand that they drew a lot of what, like a lot of that stems from this, not in like a stealing sort of way, but an homage, obviously. But just... now, uh, chronologically, if you read it in order, this is actually Bobby's third girlfriend. He has his he has his childhood girlfriend, the one that we see in his back his back issues. Her name is Judy Harmon. In the early X Men's, he has Zelda, uh, the coffee shop girl from the Coffee and Go Go, and then uh, and then he's got Lorna Dane, who he basically meets while she's being mind controlled, and is like, "Come back to my place," and she's like. I don't know if I know any better. And he's like, that's fine. <laughs> that works for it's me. A, it's a little, it's a little yeah, bit Bobby. odd. <laughs> Listen to recent episodes for more on those. Somehow Beast is creepier though. So, so the uh, Iceman has escaped his, oh, well not escaped, but he's been let go. His powers are blocked. Havoc is there and is working with Chalmers. And uh, they start to kind of argue initially, Bobby and Lorna are, are uh, excuse me, Bobby and Havoc are fighting back and forth about uh, Alex's loyalties. Bobby's calling Alex a coward for throwing mm. him in the enemy. Lorna says, no, it's because he protected me. Then uh, then a sentinel grabs Lorna and Alex is like, you know what, fuck it. If, <laughs> if, uh, if Trask is not gonna keep his end of the deal, neither am I. And he uses this crazy blast. It's so cool on page 12, his, his power signature, he lights up those concentric circles spill out of him and he gorgeously just destroys a sentinel. And uh, Trask, Larry Trask is, Pissed. He shoots a little stun gun and zaps Alex right in the jewel on his forehead uh, to remind him who is in charge, which then blocks Alex's powers, which now will increase uh, Ahmed Abdul's powers. So we we uh, we switch over to a news program. Ahmed Abdul is a well-known archaeologist in Egypt. Even though he just fought the X-Men and had his ass kicked, he immediately puts himself back on the news where he's speaking out against mutants 
this is like all the news programs are having little commentaries on what do you think of the Sentinels being released to capture mutants? We have four experts here to offer their opinions. One of them is, one of them is noted Egyptian archaeologist Ahmed Abdul. And while he's talking, he starts transforming into the living monolith. He's literally growing before their eyes on national news. And the Sentinels rush in, zap him and contain him and block his powers. So this guy has been publicly exposed as a mutant now, which mm. is a quite a big thing for his character, but kind of not much happens for a while with him. We will see this character again and again. And we do have a trial plans for him on my podcast at a particular point. Uh, just then, more Sentinels are going after Angel. They capture him in the sky. I love the way Neil Adams draws a flying angel. It's really, really pretty. We go back to Scott and Jean, who are very worried. They and Beast are still free, but they've got to get all the way back to New York. They're just landing at JFK, which must have been a very quick flight. We've noted in recent episodes that they had kind of a magic ship uh, that came out of nowhere. They've just been flying around and it seemed to go around the globe really quickly. But for some reason, they're on a commercial airline again now. <laughs> we don't exactly know what happened. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> uh, the, uh, official business, the professor isn't there, you know, it's a whole thing. <laughs> more Sentinels. So it's it's almost like Roy Thomas was keeping a database of mutants. We're going to see more mutants in the next issue. But um, more Sentinels go after Mesmero, who is my least favorite ex-villain. We just mm. put him on trial and he's such an asshat. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he has a robot of Magneto that's working for him. And there's been some debate on the podcast about whether he knew this was a robot and had it built himself or someone was tricking him. In this one, he seems to have either forgotten it's a robot or never knew in the first place. So the Sentinels. I, I think it's self-delusion, personally. I always had the impression that he <laughs> built it. Yeah. Well, it's built by Star Saxon, who becomes Machine Smith, the Captain America villain. But that, that's something that's retconned in the handbooks later. Uh, yeah. But Magneto's been kind of hanging out with Mesmero, and I think Roy Thomas thought, this is not acting like the right. Magneto that we know and love. Let's let's uh, let's make him a robot, and then we can bring Magneto back in a bigger way later. <laughs> uh, but Mesmero's like, Magneto, help me! And then the robot's destroyed, and he says, "It's a machine. No, that means the person I've been serving all these months was a creature of steel and synthetics." And the Sentinel just grabs him by the cape and hoists him into the air because your mind powers, mind control powers, don't work on a robot. I, I fucking hate this guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, we. we I'm so you're like, honey, you didn't realize your powers don't work on robots? You didn't know this earlier? No? There's no brain. Amy should be taken. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we go back to Chalmers, the judge, and we're going to talk about Chalmers in just a second. He's joining Larry Trask in his base. Trask is kind of hot. He's wearing like a skin-tight white shirt and tight green pants. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. And he's got this like bizarre medallion on, and he's got this tech he's controlling the Sentinels with. Chalmers is surprised that uh, Traska seemed to have built this entire uh, base underground in a mountain. And he's kind of impressed, but he's a little uneasy. Chalmers seems a little bit nervous about what they're doing and if it's actually legal. Uh, he uh, He's a little bit confused and concerned. And Trask is uh, showing him, he's got all these suspended animation tubes with several mutants trapped inside them. Here we see Havoc, Lorna, and Bobby, but we're going to learn next issue. He's also got like, Toad and Wanda and Pietro and Blob and Eunice and uh, Vanisher and I think a couple of other characters. Uh, maybe oh, Mastermind is in there. Time. Yeah, well, basically all of the mutants that existed at the time. It was uh, there was like three girls <laughs> and like eighteen guys. Yeah. And uh, uh, 
he's starting to mm-hmm. rant about uh, about how he needs Trask because he's a federal judge, but it is his job now to uh, to defeat mutants. It seems that he has the belief that his father was some sort of incredible crusader uh, and mm. that he was killed by the mutants. And uh, he is very, very like megalomaniacal, like slowly descending into madness, it seems. Uh, we see a flashback where his father, who was killed in, I think, X-Men 18 during the first Sentinel battle, mm-hmm. uh, was dying based on this. And he saw his son, who was a little younger at the time. Comics were aging in real time back then. Like every year was another year in the lives of the characters. Now we've retroactively added yeah, this that, time that. scale. So everything happened like 40 years passes in 10 years instead. But uh-huh. uh, but Larry, Larry remembers his father giving him a necklace and saying, and I quote, your mother wanted you to have this son. And I want you to promise you'll never remove it as long as you live. Swear, boy, swear. Uh, we're going to learn in just a second. Larry's a mutant and we're not going to learn the. I was like, I'm beginning to remember what this gem is for. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to learn the origins of that until the next issue. This is more widely expanded on in Uncanny X-Men minus one, if you remember the mm-hmm. flashback month they did several in the late 90s. Uh, but Larry Trask, uh, we're going to spend a little more time on in a future episode, but he has this mysterious necklace, which is blocking his mutant powers. The Sentinels don't read him as a mutant. We're going to talk about the implications of that as we go. Uh, uh, Banshee is there. Uh, the Sentinels have captured him in Ireland. He waited until he arrived and now he is screaming at them, but they easily defeat him with a frequency. Uh, and, uh, then, um, Chalmers starts to freak out. He's like, this guy is doing some shit that I'm not super comfortable with. Uh, and he, he's, he tries to stop him. And, uh, and here's, here's one of the things we can talk about a little bit. Trask grabs the controls and he says, why your sudden concern for mutants, Judge, unless you're a mutant lover or maybe a mutant yourself, which is such an argument that we get from these mm-hmm. awful people. Why do you need to support gay people unless you're a faggot lover? Or we see the same argument about anyone who's disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're allying with them, uh, it, World War II, it was if you support uh, yeah. Jews, you're a Jew lover. I mean, it goes on and on. We oh, yeah. we will cut out the people we don't love, and then we will cut you out if you like them. At the same time, uh, Chalmers has had enough. He hits Larry across the face, and strangely, for some reason, grabs the amulet that's around his neck, which then reveals to the Sentinels that Larry is actually a mutant. Larry is shocked. He doesn't seem to know this. And we're going to later learn that he's got some some problems with his powers and the way they work and the way his memories are there. But we'll get to that next one. So the Sentinels turn on him. They uh, they he he says, uh, I need to have the mutants killed. But he uh, the Sentinels grab him and uh, they reveal that he is a mutant. When his medallion was pulled off, they were able to determine he's a mutant himself. Uh, so the commentary on that, which is fascinating. Oh, one last thing I need to cover. Scott, Gene, and Bobby, or excuse me, Scott, Gene, and Hank have all gathered together, and they are ready to go look for their friends. So clearly the stakes are escalating. Mesmero is captured. Banshee is captured. Other people are pulled together. Havoc's got his suit. And we've got this guy, Chalmers, who's yanked the, mag- uh, the, the medallion off and exposed Larry as a mutant to the Sentinels. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I just summed up a whole bunch of stuff very quickly. <laughs> Uh, let me hear your thoughts and ideas about all of this. One of the most fascinating things in this issue, I think, is the idea of the closeted mutant being the one to mm. persecute the other mutants. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on that in specific, or just uh, anything you have to share about the story itself. Uh, sure. Well, you know, I mean, that's uh, 
pretty common both thought and trope, right? Like, he wasn't, but for the longest time, there was a rumor that the reason why Hitler hated Jews so much was because, like, he secretly was one, was a rumor that was floating around. The whole kind of, I hate because I am, that the self, it, basically the realize the realization of self-hatred um, and denial, which I also feel kind of sums him up a lot because I also feel like that goes into the whole thing with his dad, right? Like, I don't really know what their relationship was like. I don't know if the comments are saying, but clearly he has this idealized image in his head of what his father was and that this whole crusade is to try to rectify some huge injustice that was done to him. That just is not true. So I found that very interesting as well. Rohan, thoughts from you? Yeah, this like plot twist um, at the very end, uh, great cliffhanger if we could read the next issue, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I, I also felt a similar way, especially with like a lot of um, self-hatred, especially mm -hmm. in the queer community as a big theme. Um, I think, oh, okay. I think um, one of my, I guess, bigger thoughts I'm thinking about is especially like in modern policies, we're thinking about certain politicians mm -hmm. who I can't name, um, although <clears throat> Lady G, uh, I don't know her own name though. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know who that is, I don't know who she is though. <laughs> but like, I guess like the, the idea of like how destructive um, self-hate can be, how it can like ultimately destroy an entire community and ultimately yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I really love, I kind of kind of gleaned that from the narrative. Um, that's kind of why I love that random, just like, oh, you're a mutant, guess what? The thing you just wrote, I'll destroy you. And it's like, oh, Larry, darling, it's your own fault, honey. Um, yeah, I so guess something else. I think Sorry, there's some, well, I, no, and I, I'd love to hear your other thoughts. I think there's something layered about this at the same time. Yeah. If he knew he was a mutant, and again, we'll talk a bit more about it next time. If he knew he's, he was a mutant, he was only able to capitalize his agenda for as long as he was able to keep a secret. Uh, mm -hmm. Second, we have a lot of, using the queer analogy, we have a lot of history of gay people or trans people being really horribly hurt by people who have some sort of homosexuality as part of them. They've learned to hate these parts of themselves because society has just bred it into you that you need to hate yourself for being queer, which then means we hate other queers. How many origin stories do we know in our friends or in our media or stories where there's the boy on the basketball team who likes the little nerdy gay kid, but when the friends find out, then he punches the kid in the face to like show that he's tough or strong. Like we see that type of thing. And, and the threat of exposure is, is really real. Uh, there is a famous Marvel storyline as well. There's a group called the Sons of the Serpent who are mm -hmm. basically just white supremacists who dress up like snakes. And they show up every few years and they are very anti-Black and anti-immigrant. And they will have these public rallies. And there's two different storylines I can think of at the top of my head where there's a big twist reveal that the leader of the Sons of the Serpent uh, during a particular story arc was actually a Black man who had a hood on, was pretending... 
And there's there's this weird, uncomfortable energy about white writers telling that type of story. Mutants, it's easier to get away with that story because it's a fictional thing. But when you have a white person telling mm -hmm. a story about, look how this black man led these uh, white supremacists to attack other black people. The narrative is also very uncomfortable in that space. Uh, yeah. But that's a that's a story for a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Like it's, well, I will leave my thoughts on that for the next podcast too. But um, I think also makes Larry, I guess, really interesting in this moment is that he also has political power. And that kind of political power is what we see so often, especially like in our current political arena. Um, we're some politicians we should not name out loud, but it was on Twitter and Twenty for like a very long time. So whatever, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so I feel like, yeah, that that level of self-hatred. So uh, with Roy's writing here, I really appreciate that sort of like deep critique of our political structures and um, that sort of like hypocrisy that comes out pretty often. And the danger of things like fear-mongering yeah it's, it's exploited really beautifully here uh evan what were your thoughts a moment ago oh just that uh touching on what you said about them being mutants so which is you know a fictional thing as opposed to uh it's just that's like the common trope in like science fiction which the x-men comics have always been right is that it's easier to tell uh, the great thing about it is it's easier to tell these sort of really politically charged sorts of stories. So Star Trek's known for doing the exact same thing uh, by kind of removing it or, or, or taking it away from the, you know, by fictionalizing it a little bit. It, it, you get more freedom and more expression in telling really charged political stories about a subgroup who aren't real than you would if you tried to do the exact same thing, obviously, using a, yeah, it's just something about science fiction I've always loved, personally, is the intrinsic ability to do that. So uh, Bolivar Trask was introduced in the original storyline with the Sentinels and he dies at the end. And it, we get his real story in a lot of future comics uh, that are set retroactively. He has a lot of political connections. He's been uh, he's been connected to this federal judge, Judge Chalmers. He's been connected to other political organizations, people who backed his plan for the Sentinels, which was kind of an underground thing until they made it public. Uh, the Sentinels obviously have gone through a lot of changes since. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover his backstory in just a few seconds here, but we'll go into it more in a future. Uh, he was married, his wife died in a car accident, and he has two children. He's got Larry and Tanya, and both of them are mutants. Tanya is uh, the character Madame Sanctity, who kind of disappears into the timeline, and Larry's a precog. So we add this kind of level of desperation to Bolivar, not only to hide his own child, because he hates mutants for particular reasons. Again, we'll get into it in another episode. But he's desperate to keep his son hidden, which is another theme in this comic. The idea that I know what you are and I expect you to hide it. If you want power and privilege, wear this necklace, hide who you are. Then you can have the legacy that I've left behind for you. And uh, you have to persecute other people who are like you in order to get it. There's a there's an uncomfortable level of that when we get into the Trask family as well. Uh, any thoughts from either of you on that idea? I love that you said that because now I'm, I'm thinking about the scene where um, Larry's kind of almost like imitated that on Havoc. Like he's almost like putting Havoc in the suit, dressing him up. Yes. It's almost like he's, he's 
mimicking his father's behavior. There's almost another like cycle of trauma being posed imposed there. But I do love that particular scene with Havoc because it's the only moment in this um, issue where you see a mutant actually fight back and defeat a sentinel. Everywhere else, there's this constant like fatalist, like, there's no way we can win. But like this interlude twist, I hope it creates some um, lovely notes for the future. <laughs> well, and for Havoc, Havoc has powers that he can't control. He can eventually learn how, but it actually I kind of helped him in this case. But uh, but Larry, whether he's doing it consciously or subconsciously, seems to be delivering the same messages. I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna gather all the mutants and put them in anyone who's letting their light shine, who's wearing their costumes and using their powers, needs to go in these tubes, and I'm gonna keep them asleep because they're uh, we gotta we gotta deliver a message to the public that exactly what I am is not safe out there. No one else is allowed to be like this. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, uh, Trask, Trask and Chalmers are both back next issue. And then uh, Thomas picks up this story in Avengers 103, 104, uh, in the early seventies. And we'll get there eventually on the podcast as well. But, uh, but there's a lot of, a lot to unpack in this. It gets very political. Yeah. Uh, what were some of your favorite moments in this comic? And did you have a star player, someone that was, uh, kind of the, your shining light for this issue? Iceman, because he was naked. I was like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey girl, what's going on? <laughs> I'm also thinking like, why is La why did Larry make him naked in a tube and no one else? I'm very confused. That's, well, okay. that's just that's just Bobby's costume. Bobby wears shorts. There's a recent uh, Luciano Vecchio story where Iceman comes down the stairs in his briefs and his boyfriend Christian is like, why are you in your costume? And Iceman's actually, these are just, that's just my underwear. And Christian goes, oh, I can never tell the difference with you. That's just his <laughs> costume. That's just what he wears. <laughs> oh, but it now is I know. Flesh colored underwear, so I completely understand why you think he's running around with, uh, you know, <laughs> completely naked. <laughs> and then, Evan, did you have any favorite moments or a star player? Uh, just all of the first. Um, so I obviously have read all the Stanley X Men stuff, and then. Claremont on, but I, for whatever reason, missed. I should really go back and read all the Roy Thomas era stuff. So getting just a peek into that, like there's this issue in my head, sort of such a bridge between the Stan Lee stuff and like what comes later to me. So I just loved all, all of that. Like, well, if you do decide to read along, we have an episode for every issue where we give similar commentary and <laughs> thirsty and political in equal measure as we talk about each issue along the way. Uh, the X-Men, the early X-Men, and we've said this on the podcast before, the original Sentinel storyline is amazing and the original Juggernaut storyline is amazing. But the rest of it is kind of yeah. forgettable. There's, there's moments along the way that are great until Neil Adams comes in. So from like issue 55 through 66 before the book is canceled, it gets really good. We've got some crazy cool Savage Land stuff coming up. Sauron's almost here. Uh, there's some some delicious content ahead, but this is a good issue. This is a strong, solid read with gorgeous art and a lot of really incredible layered storyline. The coloring is good. The lettering is good. It's just really impressive. And the cover is amazing. Uh, we didn't mm -hmm. talk about the cover today, but it's the X-Men all captured in like a glass dome with Havoc kind of overlaid over them. It says, enter the match called Havoc. So that like, I could use it as my wallpaper because it's a great, just Havoc image. It's beautiful. And readers don't know who Havoc is here. They know who Alex is, but he's never been costumed before. So this is a, this is a really fun intro to this character. 
Uh, I hope you both had a great time exploring this issue. I know it's in the middle of a dense storyline, but I hope it leaves you thinking and inspired. And and uh, I will forever associate this particular issue with the two of you now, Aww. which is uh, always a, a positive <laughs> thing for me. Uh, as we're wrapping up, if you have any final thoughts to share, I'd love to hear it. And uh, where can people find you online? And recognizing this episode comes out on October 14th, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, Rohan and then Evan. Oh, well, first off to your fans, I apologize. Uh, don't burn me too hard for being super ignorant. Um, I will catch up on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I promise at some point in my life. <laughs> um, final thoughts. I I loved how like, just like as a writer, just looking at how deeply interwoven so many different ideas can be packed into like literally a few pages of work, which I just find really brilliant. Um, this is what comic book writers. Absolutely. It's yeah, I, I find that really brilliant about comic book writers. I think a lot of the other writers in the world, like myself, like novelists, are kind of like, Meh, but um, yeah, where can you find me? Um, you can, my Instagram and Twitter are both Diary of a Firebird. Um, so I spell that D I A R Y O F. A F I R E B I R D. Oh my gosh, I can spell. Wow. <laughs> um, that's also on my website. Um, you can also follow us at the Blasian March. That is um, B L A S I A N M A R C H. Um, our website, blasianmarch.org, for all upcoming events. Um, October is also Filipino American History Month. So we are celebrating our two-year anniversary um, with a town hall on being Black and Filipino. Um, I know this is this is launching in October. We don't we don't have all the final information yet, but we will be live streaming it on the socials. So if you are interested, feel free to chime in. Uh, the speakers, performing artists. Um, yeah, I'll also be speaking at Harvard in a few months. So. That's gonna be interesting. Um, yeah, you're doing some great stuff, and I, I look forward oh, to following thanks. your journey, Rohan. Uh, and, and then this is why I'm behind on comics. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot going on. That was never an expectation for today. Thank you. <laughs> and then uh, Evan, you go ahead. Uh, well, just quickly regarding Rohan and his comics, you know, Stanley once said that uh, every issue is somebody's first. So. Oh, thanks. Always love that. <laughs> um, this is true. So, yeah, uh, you can follow me mainly on Instagram at Evan F. Actor. That's what I am. That's what I do. Uh, and uh, given that this will be coming out in October, I'm working very hard on a live, um, I hope I can say this here, a live action X-Men fan series completely unaffiliated with the anyone or anything so please don't come at me but uh everything goes according to plan we will have a teaser out by the time this goes up so please look yay fantastic i didn't know your account was evan f actor i just thought you were evan factor <laughs> that would be why i wasn't tagged because i did find that post and i'm like i, I never 
never got a notification for this. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find Gray Malk and Lane, Gray Malk and PP like podcast on Twitter or Gray Malk and underscore Lane on Instagram. Our next three episodes after this are just going straight through the storyline. X-Men 59, 60, 61. Our featured guests for those episodes are Jerry Gaylord and then Steen Stewart and then Chuck Austin. So we've got some really cool stuff coming up and uh, we're going to hit it from a lot of different angles. Uh, right around this is released time this was released as well, I'll be releasing a Patreon episode all about Storm's parents, the Monroes, uh, featuring the incredible Bar Fox, who's been on the pod a couple of times. Uh, it's going to be really wonderful. We've got cool stuff coming up and uh, some big announcements as we go into the new year. Uh, so, Mike Friedrich, I know you. if you're still listening, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, Evan Feldman and... Uh, Rohan, I'm going to say your last name wrong. you got to repeat it for me one more time. <laughs> Joe Lee. Uh, I'm not going to get the inflections right, but Rohan, it's Joe Lee, uh, I'm so thrilled <laughs> to have met you both, to interact with you both, and uh, thank you for your time and talents today. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham